Welcome back to Success and More Interesting Stuff. As a rule, doctors are not supposed to make good investors. Dr. John McBain is the exception. After a celebrated career in medicine, Associate Professor McBain has applied his canny Scottish intuition to the share market with impressive results. His share market fame soared in early 2021 when he became known as a backer of Buy Now, Pay Later juggernaut Afterpay, even before it listed. McBain was born into humble surroundings in Glasgow, Scotland. A family pioneer, he headed off to university to study medicine. This was the beginning of a fabulous journey that took him halfway around the world to Melbourne. Only four years later, he was an integral part of the medical team that delivered Candice Reed, the first IVF baby born in Australia. From that moment, Australia led the charge in IVF with McBain at the helm. His name was put up in lights in 2001 when his battle with the Catholic Church to allow all women access to IVF went all the way to the High Court, ending in victory. Not to sit idle, McBain used his time as a doctor wisely as founder of Virtus IVF. Virtus went on to become the largest commercial IVF group in Australia, listing on the ASX in 2013. By the time the company went public, McBain had stepped away from management and took the opportunity to cash in his shares. He took his fortune and set about taking on the share market. Early success came with the organic infant formula group Bellamy's and auto lender Money3. This was soon followed by his foray into afterpay. He rode the ups and downs of the wildly successful venture, pocketing a major windfall before the company was bid for in 2021. Today, McBain carries the clout of a small institutional investor with a broad spread of listed and unlisted companies, ranging from nasal spray group RhinoMed to prawn farming giant Sea Farms. He is happy to back his instincts and take sizable bets. Welcome, John. Not a bad career for a poor kid from Glasgow. Well, I'm only sorry my parents couldn't have heard it because my father would have thought it was a very fine bit of wordsmith and my mother would have believed every word. (laughs) I'm sure parents aren't meant to believe things, especially when they've got naughty kids. So maybe that's a good intro into your upbringing in Scotland. Glasgow was the hometown. Glasgow's known for being a tough town. How was your environment growing up there? I couldn't have grown up in a better place, Matthew. I was a much-loved last child in a reasonably large family. My father was a a foreman blacksmith. My mother was a stay-at-home mother. I had sisters who had left school at 14, and they were bringing money into the house too. And everything was fine until my father lost his job because he was a blacksmith, and that was a failed trade. And my sisters had left home to marry at that time. So our circumstances suddenly became quite reduced. I have been looking after myself since I was 14, and I started a paper round because I saw that no one else was doing it. And by the time I finished high school, I was employing five other boys to do that. I've always had that entrepreneurial streak, I guess. I spent six years emptying dustbins for 20 weeks a year when I was at university studying medicine and selling suits on Saturday at um, one of the department stores and had two weeks holiday and 30 weeks uh, university. I couldn't have done that nowadays because the medical course is far much harder now because there's so much more to know. I have two children who've become medical doctors, and I am stunned at the, the depth and breadth of what they're required to know. And John, was that was that normal for kids of that age to expect it to get a job? So you went out and did your newspaper round, but you quickly established quite a sizable little operation there. Was that normal? 
I was the only person who had done that. I, I saw people going to the bus stop in the morning without a paper. So I set up a couple of boys selling newspapers at bus stops. And I must say that the, the people at the Glasgow Daily Record and Glasgow Daily Express took a real bet on me by giving me a delivery of newspapers to my home every morning. And so you'd be up early, you get your henchmen in, set them up for the day. I'd be up at 5 p.m. Yep. Nice warm mornings in Glasgow. Oh, uh, I, I, I was running everywhere to deliver things, so I didn't notice. Yeah, definitely wet. And, and what were you like at school, given you were so busy doing extracurricular activities? I didn't do quite as well as perhaps I might have done. I was uh, very good at sports. I was captain of the football team and, uh, and, and then head of the rowing team and athletics. And then I became school captain. And one thing led to another. And although I didn't excel in my results, I was chosen to be one of a number of boys, about 40 boys from Great Britain, who went to Expo 67 to be young ambassadors of Great Britain to that. And I then mixed with boys who would just took it for granted that they'd be going to Oxford or Cambridge to study medicine or law. And, and I quickly saw that I wasn't really all that uh, less able than them. And so rather than studying pharmacy, which had been the height of my ambition, I changed my application to medicine. And I think probably on the word of the local minister in my parish at Glasgow, got a, a spot and I've never looked back. So references were as important as marks in those days? Well, they weren't, they weren't generally. The, the marks were all right. They, they weren't stellar. I was playing in a rock band in the evenings too. I had a, a girlfriend who needed quite a lot of attention also. My father <laughs> used to say that he spent more time studying the, the, the racing form than I have appeared to for my schoolwork. And, and what did you play in the rock band? Uh, bass guitar and, and initially lead vocals because I was the only one that knew the words, then backup vocals. And any success? Uh, no, no, not really. We had one in our first gig. We managed to clear the Govan Town Hall of 300 people uh, within 40 minutes once they heard us play. <laughs> That's a good sign. So you went off to, you stayed in your hometown to study medicine at Glasgow. What was your cohort like? Was that a difficult period given that you have to upsize your ambition to get in? Well, not really. Everyone had their own story. There are those who are sons and daughters of doctors or professional people, and there are those whose similar background to myself had uh, managed to get into the, the, the medical course. All that was forgotten. We were all just pals. And indeed, I'll be celebrating, I, I think, the 48th year since our graduation in Perthshire in May next year with the, the many pals who, who are still alive and, and active. So let, let's move on from there. It's interesting, you finish medicine, you start working in the UK, but it wasn't long before you were in Australia. So can you give us a run through your first job? And I think I'm right in saying 1976 was when you took off for Australia. What happened those intervening years? Oh, well, I did my early training in the Western Infirmary in, in Glasgow. I was asked if I would like to train in obstetrics and gynaecology by a doctor who had remembered me as a student when I had won the prize in obstetrics and gynaecology. I really worked hard at that that year because my first daughter was born that year. 
I uh, really hit the books and wanted to know everything about it. And then I did the same in pediatrics when she was born. So self-interest. And he offered me a job. I took the job. I liked it. They seemed to like me. There was a visiting doctor from Australia who took a, a shine to me. My professor, who had been the inventor of medical ultrasound, told me that I should clear out of Glasgow for a couple of years. My plan was to come to Australia, do some work in infertility, and then return to a medical, a promoted university job in, in Glasgow. But I lost my return ticket. So before, before we look closely at Australia and your experience here, going back to your family, you explained the structure of your family, who did what, the businesses that you got involved in. Was there any talk of the stock market in the family or among friends or the extended family? Was that something that was in the conversation or was it something foreign to you? The only investing was with, from my father with the local bookie. <laughs> and with, did he get a good return? A very poor return. And did that teach you anything? <laughs> oh, I've never been a gambler other than in the micro caps, which you and I invest in, Matthew. Very good. Okay, 1976, you make that journey around the world and land in Australia. And you said you lost the return ticket, but it, it seems like it was fast tracked. It wasn't very long before we're talking IVF babies. What happened and how did that team form? Uh, once more, my, my guardian angel or lucky star was in attendance. I lobbed into Melbourne where no one was interested in in vitro fertilization because everyone knew it would never work. So I was starting my doctorate there under the supervision of a man who was measuring hormones in, in urine, which had led to getting a large WHO grant for hormones in urine for women's breast cancer. And he had initially been the man who was going to do the IVF stimulation so that we could get multiple eggs. But he was too busy in and he said, well, here, you, you do it. And I did it. And I developed all the ways of safely stimulating the ovaries in infertile women to get multiple eggs for the purpose of in vitro fertilization. Candice Reed was the eventual baby in 1983, third IVF baby in the world, I think. Was there a lot of pushback from the community and the medical community? There was no pushback at first because it didn't work. And, and so there was nothing to be alarmed about. But once it started working, then the unholy alliance of the Catholic Church and the, the feminist push started to make things uncomfortable for us. The women thought that we were manipulating women's bodies, using them as living laboratories and the Catholic Church. Uh, well, they already had this idea that the only way a child could be born was through, through intercourse. And every act of intercourse had to bring about the chance of the birth of a child. And that's why they were against contraception. So they were never going to, and they still don't officially, sanction life being created by sperm entering an egg in the glass dish. And that resistance, did it make it difficult to get funding to keep going with IVF and turning it into what is a major industry today? Well, we had no funding. And so what we did was we donated our own surgical fees into the program. And it wasn't until it was successful that we started charging the patients anything. We did it in the smell of a rag, Matthew. And when Candace came along, it must have been a momentous occasion. Well, it certainly was. But 
although we were the second team to do it with Steptoe and Edwards being first, they only had two pregnancies over the intervening two years. And we had one pregnancy in the same period of time. And doing the arithmetic now, it's clear that it was just such a low chance. There was one woman, Candace's mother, who became pregnant in the year 1979 of 50 women we had treated. And that's a 2% chance. And that was the same with Step 2 and Edwards when we got to analyze their figures too. So it was just random that they got the pregnancy first. And you mentioned you donated the your wages or fees to fund the operation or the project. What was the drive behind that? Was there just a general goodwill or it was something that had to be achieved because you believed in it? Yeah, it was something that we at the Royal Women's Hospital were determined would work. The leadership of the the team was with Ian Johnson, my colleague and friend Andrew Spears, and then Michael Grono, and then Chris Bailey after that. As we worked and did surgical egg, egg retrievals, we would be able to get funds through charging the patient a rebatable fee through Medicare or its predecessor. And the money that we got, we just put into the kitty to employ the laboratory assistants. The senior scientist was employed by the university, so that wasn't a problem, but to employ the assistants to purchase culture fluid incubators and all that sort of stuff. It was never meant to be a money-making process. It was just something which we thought ought to be done. And from that point onwards, Australia became known as, as a leader in IVF post-1980, right through the next decade or so. That came because it was self-funding and there was a lot of effort and energy put into it? Or was the success a fuel for more success and to strive further? Success came to us slowly, Matthew, and, and, and it wasn't until 1983 that every time we treated a woman that her chance of pregnancy was somewhere close to 10% or thereabouts. And that was only because we were putting back up to four embryos at the one time, meaning randomly she had a chance of a single birth. Remember, the, the, the commonest outcome was no pregnancy from the transfer of these four embryos. But By 1984, we had the world's first quadruplet pregnancy. I saw that as a technology failure, and that's why we moved very rapidly over the years, and my team led the way in this, of reducing the number of embryos that we transferred and freezing the extra ones which we developed. And that is now the mainstay of clinical IVF. And the percentage of success today is higher. Why is that? Because we now know what we're doing. We, as you correctly say, led the world. But we stopped leading leading the world when it became a criminal offence with up to four years imprisonment to do embryo experimentation. So we had to import techniques, culture fluid, types of incubator from jurisdictions where it wasn't an offence to do that work. And our legislators and the others who oversaw us could see no irony in that. And where did you source those embryos from? Where wasn't it illegal? In the United States. And uh, the, the current scientific director of Virtus Health, Professor David Gardner, left Melbourne and went to, to Denver, Colorado, where he developed the, the culture conditions which were necessary to allow the healthy growth of a normal embryo. 
And the battle, it seems, just didn't seem to stop because eventually you had the battle with the Catholic Church about who could access IVF and going to that point before about their beliefs and the battle between state and federal legislation went all the way to the High Court. And I know my daughter who's studying law told me last year that she read this case with McBain in it. And I said, I think I know that doctor. So you became famous in legal circles by taking the Catholic Church right to Canberra and the High Court. Must have been great to get an outcome on that front. I'll explain how it went. Before there was a law in Victoria, the Victorians insist in calling it their pioneering legislation, that hadn't been an offence for single or gay women to have donor insemination. We saw a psychiatrist, first of all, and we did it all very much in-house. It worked well. It was only in 1983 in the Victorian Parliament in the Upper House at 2am that trying to get the bill through, which had been foisted upon us, the country party insisted that they would only support that bill if the couple having the treatment were legally married. And that went on until 1995, before they changed the legislation. I had set up a clinic in Albury in New South Wales, really to help country people. Because it seemed wrong to me that someone was driving five hours to see me for half an hour and drive five hours back. So I set up a clinic in Albury on the reproductively sane side of the River Murray, where the Victorian legislation didn't apply. It became clear to me that the single women, the, the gay couples, the de factos, wanted a baby and they had the same high dreams and aspirations as those who were married. And I, I, I took it upon myself to sue the Victorian government, the Minister for Health, and various other people in the federal court in 2001. That caused a moral panic, and the government invoked a, a, a law called the Interpretation of Acts Act, which discerned some words in the minister's second reading speech, which said this only applied to infertile couples. Over that time also, the Catholic Bishops' Conference had sought a prohibition on my practice. Through Darrell Williams, who was the Attorney General in Western Australia, obtained writs of mandamus and certiorari, which allowed them to bring me to the High Court, where my legal team spent three days at the Hyatt, having travelled up in the sharp end of the plane, but fortunately, I won 7 nil with costs. And became a famous case, which is fantastic. And it relied on the federal legislation of no discrimination about who has the right to have a child. Is that basically it? Well, you can't discriminate against someone on the basis of race, religion, all sorts of things. And everyone knew this. And everyone knew that the Victorian law had been brought forth flying in the face of that, but no one did anything about it. I did, and I won. Terrific. So during that time also, going back to the IVF situation, you formed Melbourne IVF, which later became, became Virtus, and it became a commercial operation. How did you do that while you're working at the Women's Hospital? Is, is that how it worked? And the team there formed a commercial enterprise? The only reason we formed a commercial enterprise is because the women's hospital didn't have any more space to accommodate the growing number of cases that needed to be looked after. And also our practices were growing, the parking was becoming a problem. And so we fell in with the, the Freemasons 
who were building a new medical center and they had a theme of women's health. I think they were trying to do something to counteract their sort of fusty image. The new medical center was going to have its priority in women's health. And so we were a, a natural fit for that. But we had to, each of us, put in about $20,000 to establish the laboratory there. There was no IVF rebate. We didn't do this to make money. We did it so that we could continue our IVF practice as part of our general practices. I was delivering a medicine obstetrics. I was doing operative gynecology. I was lecturing at the university. I was doing my research and I was doing IVF. It was a real mixed business. A group of you put in $20,000. That later became the basis of the shareholding? Yes. And the formation of a company occurred when? When you went into those new facilities, was it? When you put in the 20000 or was it later on? No, it was in 1989, we formed Melbourne IVF, the Heptarchy Trust. We all put in our money. And in the first year, I think our, our profit was about $3,000 in our first year of operation. And how many of you were there? How many shareholders in that group? There were seven of us. Seven. Seven founders with equal holdings? Yes. And who ran the business as it became bigger? As you went through the 90s into the 2000s, it obviously became bigger and became quite a commercial enterprise. Who ran that business? Did you play a role in that? Yes, there was a, a board of seven. The, the founding chairman, Ian Johnson, had become the chair of the Reproductive Technology Accreditation Committee of the Fertility Society in Australia. And we felt that he shouldn't hold the chairmanship of Melbourne IVF and have that chairmanship also. Also, he was he was getting towards the age that I am now. So I suggested that he might go and I might take over from him. And I did. I was the executive chairman. So it was a coup? It was a gentle coup. He, he, he was a gentleman and he saw the writing on the wall. It possibly a bit like Gareth Edwards saying to Bob Hawk, the, the dogs are pissing on your swag, mate. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't use that language, but I, can, I get the drift. So you built the business, you're executive chairman for an extended period, and eventually the company turned to Virtus, it gave the name, and listed on the ASX in 2013. What was your role then? Had you left or were you still part of it? I had a very minor role in all of that. Lyndon Hale had taken over me from me as a executive chairman. I had other fish to fry, and he did it very well. He negotiated with Quadrant Private Equity. And I must say, Quadrant Private Equity were the best possible partner looking after medical people. They listened to us. And everything that we said gave them due consideration. Indeed, Marcus Darville sort of talked us into upping the amount that we wanted for the sale of the company because we were giving it away for far less. And he knew once we discovered what other clinics were being sell sold for, then there would be unhappiness. So the Quadrant Private Equity people from the very start made sure that the relations with the doctors and the private equity were as good as they could possibly be. And I think that's a model for the way to privatize medicine. So they let the doctors take care of the medical side and the operations, but they had their fingerprints on the financial side 
and how it should be funded and, and what valuation should be attributed. That's right. They brought in many improvements, which we as doctors and part-time businessmen would never have thought of. And 2013, the company lists as the first IVF. It was soon followed by Monash, as we know now. You no longer were part of the management team and you obviously had your shareholding, which was worth quite a bit. I'd been on the National Advisory Board. I didn't leave in any huff at all. The only reason I sold my shares was that I was uh, still had my leadership role at the Women's Hospital. And I was advising the Women's Hospital in reproductive matters. And the Board of Management thought that I had a conflict of interest as a shareholder in Virtus Health and uh, as their advisor. I told Virtus what I was doing and I sold a line of my shares. I did particularly well because the price fell a number of years later, although it is now properly uh, in, in the ascent once more. And so you're still a believer in the company? Oh, yes. This is, this, is, this is a very, very good company. This is a very good company with the top doctors and medical equipment and scientific know-how. It's also a company which has great peer review within it. There are many sort of, you might call them small business, single-handed enterprises of people who have usually left some of the larger clinics with some reason for their dissatisfaction or another. I feel that they're a bit isolated in terms of their inability to keep up the standards required, both continuing medical education and ethical considerations. Let's get to the exciting bit now. You leave Virtus, you sell your shares for the reason that you outlined. You've got a reasonable pool of capital. Was it then you thought, well, my new career is going to be on the share market or that's just something that evolved? No, I've been in the share market since 1996, initially with Weirs, the typical boring portfolio that you would get from uh, responsible Weirs advisors. I sort of fell out of love with them when they wouldn't like me invest in Patrick's. When I saw what Patrick's were trying to do and the inevitability of their success against the Warfies, then I wanted to put a mozza into that and they, they wouldn't let me do it. So I left them and found a, a kindred spirit in Hugh Walter Robertson. Who, who's moved from a few brokers but now sits at Bell Potter in Melbourne. He's been everywhere. Uh, he, he was at Faulkner's at the time and then went to Bell's and then went to Wilson H2M and then Investors First. And he's now safely back in the welcoming arms of the brothers Bell. <laughs> And so let's let's concentrate on that. So you'd had some experience, but all of a sudden you had a bit more time on your hands and a bit more capital, I gather, post-Virtus. And there were a number of investments then. Bellamy's came through Hugh. I know that. They were floating it. There was Money3, which I understand you were a big shareholder. What attracted you to those early investments? It's fair to say, Matthew, that my investment strategy at first was standing at the end of the conveyor belt where all the deals came through from Bell Potter and just picking them up one after the other and, and investing in them. That actually was a very passive strategy, but a very rewarding one. I got a nice parcel of Bellamy's. I felt I was the cleverest guy in the room when I sold my, I think, 40 cents shares at $4. I had no idea, and I don't think anyone did, what the, the Chinese diaspora would do to buy safe powdered milk and send it back home. 
And that's why it had that extraordinary share price at one time of $20. $20. I, didn't, I didn't regret it. I think good advice, which I've, I can't remember who gave it to me, is you've got to leave something on, on the table for the next person and you can't look back. I, I think that's like an investment Panadol. Just makes you feel a bit better, but it doesn't stop the pain. Better to have the win than not. There's no doubt about that. I like money three because I like things which will lend to people that other institutions won't. My background in Glasgow, we had someone who would come round every Friday night to collect two and sixpence from my mother, which would then go into some sort of fund. And once there was enough money to justify a purchase, we'd go into the Goldberg's warehouse in the candle rigs and get a new set of uh, clothes and shoes and, and so on. So that was a very important thing for me growing up. And that's one of the things which remains uh, a cornerstone of my philosophy, that people deserve to be given credit. And you remain a shareholder in Money3 today, or it's re-rated enormously over the last five or six years? That's one of my larger shareholdings. I, 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 I like very much what they're doing, and I like the increasing quality of their book. So let's go on to Afterpay. And there was a book written earlier this year that was released called Buy Now, Pay Later by Jonathan Shapiro, James Eyre. On, I think it's page 85 or somewhere around there, they were talking about Hugh Robertson in the days before it listed, back in 2015, we needed to raise $8 million. And he showed the company around and he came up a bit short. And the book suggests that there was $500,000 put forward by you, but when he needed some more, you ended up putting in another 200000 to help him get to the $8 million. Story's correct. Yes, the story is correct. I was one of the first in the first presentation that Anthony and Nick made. And I was so impressed with these men and, and with their vision. I remember saying to, to Nick at the end of the presentation, you guys will change the face of retail in Australia. It just seemed so clear to me how this would work. At that time, they had two clients, but I had such faith in what seemed to me the character of these men and their intelligence and vision and ambition that I was very happy to pony up for that amount. And it was very early days when Hugh raised that money for them. And a lot of people were briefed and, and had presentations and just walked away from it. But you saw something different. Why do you think it would change the face of way, the way retail would operate in this country? Nick expressed it beautifully. And I've never heard anyone repeat this quote. He said, this will stop people having to go and visit their clothes every week. And that's exactly what the system of lay-by was. Interesting. A very smart salesman, Nick. And it was just a no-brainer. I mean, I mean, he saw that so clearly, and I was lucky to, to, to see it from him. But once they got this offer from Square, I wrote them each an, an email congratulating them on, on it. And, and they were very kind in their remarks for, uh, to me of my early uh, support. When the company did float a year later, were you, you participated in the float again? Yes, I did. And thank goodness for St. Escrow. She is by the, the patron saint of patient investors because my 20 cent shares were now worth $1.40, then they were worth $3.70. And that money would have been burning a hole in my pocket, Matthew. And so thank goodness I was unable to access these funds. 
And it was a terrific ride over the next four or five years until we now we've got the takeover bid and that will go through with the goodness of time and the process. But it did have a roller coaster ride. We saw out of the back of the coronavirus sell off last year, the stock, well, I think, went back down to $8. It subsequently skyrocketed and, and went up 15 fold. So it has been a roller coaster of a ride. How have you dealt with that as an investor? Because as time's gone on, the capital has become, the investments become a much bigger part of the overall portfolio and big in dollar terms. Yes, it has. And I've sold down along the way when we needed deposits for children's houses or, or gifts for, for one thing or another, or pledges we had made to the university or to the hospital for the various, or to the children's school for the various things we support to people overseas in the extended family for the purchase of farms for my agriculturally based children. So everything has in the main been funded from that early lucky investment in Afterpay. Yes, I could have held on to it and the stake would have been worth 400 million by now, but so much of the really good things that my family was able to do for the family itself and others and our philanthropic targets would not have happened. Terrific. So he used it almost like a bank. Whenever you needed the money for something, go to the Afterpay bank. The bank of Afterpay, yes. Yes, Alex Wiselet remarked that we are moving into adjoining penthouses in a place in St Kilda. He said, yeah, that you'll be calling that the afterpay uh, apartment in Bain, won't you? And I said, no, nah, wouldn't be so crass, Alex, I said. <laughs> Very good. So that takes us on to your investing today. I understand you've got a reasonably large portfolio, both of listed and unlisted. And from those early days that you talked about how you were investing, have you got an approach now or do you just follow your instinct? Do you have a portfolio structure? How do you go about your investing? Because it's much larger than it used to be. Although it's much narrower than it used to be. I used to have bits of everything, all sort of rats and mice all over the place. I've sort of developed favourites. Uh, I've developed stocks in which I have faith in the model and in the management. And I've also learned from people like uh, Wiselitz that patience is not a bad thing to have and that the stock exchange is a mechanism which takes money from the impatient and rewards the patient. And so today, how, how many different investments would you hold, both listed and unlisted, in the form of companies? Probably about 15 listed and about oh, a similar number unlisted. And does, do the unlisted worry you, the lack of liquidity, or does that go back to that patience and there's good opportunity there? It has to be patience. You know, here's an example. After pay was one month. A month later, adjacents was the collar on the cattle to give them virtual uh, fencing to control cattle. That came on a month later. I took a, a big holding in that. I sold out of that. I went onto the board of Edgerson's in time, and I sold out of that after five years, probably at about a 30, 40% profit. Good, but modest compared with have to pay. And the month after that, there was another agricultural one called AgLive, which is still not listed and which has got a good model and in time will work. And I remain uh, a shareholder in AgLive and I support it at each of its raisings because I, I admire the management and, and I think the technology is sound. 
And are you partial to any type of company? Because you've mentioned Money3, a finance company. We've talked about Afterpay, which is technology and finance. You grew up in Invertis, which was a medical technology company. Is there anything that piques your interest and you're partial to? Well, I, I like to invest in unlisted where I can see round the corner or into the next paddock of what it will bring. I'm a director of an unlisted company called Vitrify, which is a new way of freezing tissue. I know that this company will be able to solve the problem of the attrition rate in stem cells. And that's one of the problems that stem cells have, the inconsistency, their batch effect, because of, I'm sure, because of freezing and thawing. Uh, and I hope that if Sylvia would ever come to see us to discuss this with us, we could point out how his stem cells would benefit from this technology. Also, the CAR-T manipulation of white blood cells to go all around the body fighting cancer in every crevice, nook and cranny, which will become the fundamental part of cancer therapy for all sorts of tumours, including solid ones, for many years to come. Cells need to be cultured, they need to be expanded, and then they need to be frozen. And they need to be frozen in the way that Vitrify can do it. I also believe Vitrify will be able to freeze a whole ovary from a wound. It's part of my work. I was part of that team which developed the way of taking ovarian fragments, freezing them, and putting them back into a woman after life-saving but fertility-destroying chemotherapy, and then having live babies from that. Currently, we have to do it in two millimeter cubes. This technology will allow us to freeze a whole ovary, take an ovary from a 32-year-old woman, freeze it and re-implant it when she's 45 so that she can expand her reproductive life or go through the next 20 years without the need for hormone replacement therapy. And the ability to commercialize such technology, how patient would you be? Is it, is it a decade-long journey? Is it Five years? Is it 20 years? Five years will be ovary because there are ethical considerations to overcome. And there's a court of public opinion because what I've just said is, is not really accepted nor acceptable practice in medicine currently. But you think it will over time? Yeah, I think it will. This, this is going off on a tangent to something else now. We were talking about um, the unlisted. I also uh, a major shareholder in Simavita, which is the adult nappy, which we delisted and have taken to become a Swiss company. And we're in negotiations with through Henkel, who are a, a German partner with the major nappy makers or diapers, as they insist in calling them, in. Uh, Europe and in the United States. It's a smart nappy which tells you when it needs to be changed and tells you when the elderly person needs to be turned and will tell you the temperature, the pulse uh, oximetry, the oxygen, and if when they last moved. What's currently important is how wet is the nappy? When does it need to be changed? Okay. The nappy needs to be changed, that's good. But sometimes the nappy doesn't need to be changed. And you need to know that because the person may be becoming dehydrated. 
smart nappy sounds very sensible when you put it like that. Just changing to the listed market, you mentioned that you'd hold 15 or circa 15 stocks at any given time. One of those is RhinoMed, which is the nasal spray technology that you've got a quite large shareholding in, in terms of percentage of the company. Can you give us some insight into RhinoMed and why you think it's got a, a prosperous future? Well, it's a Victor Kayam moment when I used the product Mute. And you remember Victor Kayam was, was it Wilkinson Sword or something like that? He liked the company so much he bought it. I didn't quite buy it, but <laughs> I've got an 18% of the company now. And and I just so admire Michael Johnson, the managing director. That man is a genius in the things that he's come up with. First of all, to the nasal stent, it's not a spray, it's a stent, mute, which flares the nostril, which increases the flow of air for the nose-breathing person overnight. If you increase the radius, then the flow of air by physical law increases raised to the power of four. Uh, and that stops people snoring. It certainly stops me snoring. And my wife can tell when I've got the stent in or if I've forgotten to put it in overnight. And so many other people say a similar story. So that's the first thing. And I'm a supporter of that. It hasn't set the heather on fire. I think that's mostly because men don't really worry if this if they snore or not. It's true that it's not for everyone. It's only for where there is mild nasal obstruction. There are aspects of other breathing problems which can be attended to as well. It's also going to be a very good delivery system for decongestants and for cannabis. But where the beauty of this company is, is that Michael Johnson looked at this stent looked at COVID and said, I'm going to make a swab which just sits in the nose, sits in the nose exactly where COVID-19 makes its entry into the ACE receptors on the nares just underneath the turbinates. It's exactly where it sits. And it is self-administered. There's a consistency in its application because there's only one way you can use it rather than someone might inefficiently or even wrongly self-swab themselves with the with, with the current swab. Its pickup is 1.6 times the amount of material that the conventional swab does. Its elution of that material into product to be either um, expanded by polymerase chain reaction or to use as increased material for an antigen test is significantly superior. Some will say, well, yes, but COVID will soon be over. It won't matter anymore. I believe it will become the platform for the diagnosis of respiratory conditions for forever, really. And I say that because when once COVID has gone, influenza will be back with us. Now, influenza uh, is epidemic, it's seasonal, and it will come back every couple of years. There are no drugs for influenza which work, and that's because people have to wait until they have symptoms of influenza. This swab will pick up through mass frequency test, mass high frequency testing, the very earliest signs of influenza on antigen testing. And you remember Relenza and other anti-influenza drugs made about 10, 15 years ago, then abandoned. They were abandoned because they didn't work in established 
treatment in the established condition. If you have a swab which picks up the very earliest sign of the presence of the virus, then I believe that these drugs will have a renaissance in terms of their use. So you've proven to be entrepreneurial in a financial sense and over your career, entrepreneurial in an ideas sense. You love to explore ideas. In summary, is that the main reason you like small companies, micro companies, because there are lots of variety and different ideas being explored and opportunities being attempted to be taken? I think so. It's not the Wild West. The ones that I get to see are probably only 10% of the ones that will walk in through the door of my advisors. And even the ones that I uh, get to see, I, I I don't take all of them. I usually, for politeness sake, take a little of each of them, and then we'll see what happens to that holding one way or another. I'm a bit of a mug for taking a holding and holding onto it. I hate when I see people falling over each other and climbing over each other to get an allocation of a stock and then flipping it upon listing for a couple of cents here here and there. That's not my, my way to invest. Well, John, it's been delightful speaking to you. Good luck with all your investing going forward. It sounds like you've got many years of this career to go and hopefully we'll catch up in the near term. Maybe we'll sit on a plane together going up to look at prawns in the Northern Territory once more, Matthew. I'd enjoy that. It was good fun the first time and I'm sure it would be the second time. All right. Nice to see you, Matthew. 